Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. This is, um, I think there's a distinction that people have forgotten and a history that people have forgotten. Um, we've always been a capitalist society, but when people say capitalism now, including the way you just said it, and I don't blame you for this, what they really mean, because it's the only kind of capitalism we've known for about 40 years, is what's come to be called neoliberalism. Sometimes it's called economism or market fundamentalism, but it's basically the idea, not just of a capitalist society, but that money is the only value, the only value, the only thing, the only measure of worth is wealth or GDP. The, uh, the only function of a human being is their function in the market as consumers and even more as producers, right? And so now at the point of my essay, The Neoliberal Arts, is that we've recreated our educational system in the image of neoliberalism so that people are only thought of, the only function of an educational system is thought of uh, to be, to produce, as producing producers, training people for the job market. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Bill, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually came across your book, uh, Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite, in another book I was reading. I believe it was uh, Andrew Yang's book, The War on Normal People, who people have just heard his interview, uh, our interview with him. Uh, he's running for president in 2020. But I remember reading the title of the book in just a few excerpts and thought, okay, I have to get this. This is my story in so many ways because I feel like I'm a failed byproduct of this education system. Uh, but before we get into all of that, uh, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life, your career, and this perspective that you have on education? Well, that's an interesting question. I don't think anybody's asked me that. Um, my mom uh, was a stay-at-home mom. Um, my parents started their family in the 50s there. They were born in the 20s. Uh, they're from a different generation. In, they were sort of even from a slightly different generation than a lot of my parents, a lot of my friends' parents. Um, my dad was a was a college professor, um, which is what I became. So obviously that had a huge impact. He was um, a professor of engineering, um, and I became an English professor. But you know, um, one of the things that I've realized over the years is I've thought about young people and how they make their choices and counseled students and, and now people have written to me because of my book about their career choices, is that a big factor uh, in determining whether somebody can even contemplate a particular career is whether they've seen adults in their world who do it. You know, I mean, I think when you talk 
for example, I mean, it's a big problem that lower-income kids and kids from communities of color go into academia at much lower rates. And there are all kinds of reasons for that, but one of them is just like, they don't even know what this thing is, and it's just like, or how do you even do it, or why would you even do it? So, you know, I went into my father's business in a certain respect, and that makes a lot of sense. And the other thing, I guess is the sort of the other big kind of piece of my vocational narrative, at least in terms of the way I tell it, is that I made this giant wrong turn or or uh, or I didn't make any turn. I just I just went straight along a road that turned out to be long wrong road for me because my dad was not only a scientist, he was also an immigrant. And so, you know, he kind of had the attitude of you need to play it safe. You need to make sure that you do something that's going to guarantee you as much as possible a secure living. And for him, that really only meant one thing. It only meant the sciences. He actually wanted me to be a doctor, which my older brother ended up being. Um, but definitely, you know, anything outside the sciences really was not really understood or validated in my family. Uh, so I actually majored in science, not in engineering, but in biology, psychology. It was kind of a joint major that today would probably be called cognitive science. And I did it without giving a lot of thought to it. Uh, I chose the major before college even started. So I didn't do any of the kind of exploration that I think college, and especially the first couple of years of college, should be for, for young people, that it's designed to be for, really, uh, uniquely in this country. Um, unlike the way things are done pretty much everywhere else. Uh, and it was only, you know, like halfway through college uh, where I realized, you know, I don't actually think that I want to do this. Uh, and by then it was really effectively too late for me to change majors. Uh, I mean, I guess I could have, you know, spent five or six years in school, but that, that wasn't really an option. It never even crossed my mind. So, I guess that's that's the answer. I mean, in both good ways and bad ways, what my father did uh, for a living really did determine at least the early parts of my vocational path. So we'll get to the later parts of your vocational path. I think what okay. strikes me is is the uncanny parallels between our lives. My dad is a college professor, also in the mm -hmm. sciences. Um, as you probably have gathered from writing this book, I grew up in an Indian immigrant family, so the narrative was go to school, go to the best damn school you could possibly get into. Um, I remember when I was sitting with my dad, we were looking at Berkeley and USC, and he made it very clear that Berkeley would be a better choice, which is where I ended up going. Uh, but two questions. Uh, having you know had that experience with your own parents, what would you tell parents who are, are, are listening to this? And in your book, you said the system manufactures students who are smart and talented and driven, yes, but also anxious, timid, and lost with intellectual curiosity and a stunted sense of purpose trapped in a no intellectual curiosity. Oh, I'm sorry? With no intellectual With curiosity. no intellectual curiosity right. and a stunted sense of purpose trapped in a bubble of privilege heading meekly in the same direction, great at what they're doing, but with no idea why they're doing it. So parents yeah. are listening to this. One, what would you tell them? And two, how do we stop a system that creates this? Well, those, I mean, the first question, the second question is a lot harder to answer because it's a, system, it's a, it's a systemic question. Um, what I would say to parents, and I talk to parents a lot, especially at high schools, typically kind of affluent, private, sometimes public high schools, uh, 
first of all, well, one of the, well, actually, one of the first things I say, especially if I'm talking, quite frankly, in an environment like that, an environment of the kind that produces most of the kids who go to elite schools, it's an affluent environment already. I tell them, your kid probably is going to be fine. Okay, if they're growing up in this community, to these parents, they're already like in the top 1% of kids, maybe the top 5% of kids, not in terms of intellect or whatever, but in terms of life chances, like they're, they're on the, the, like the high side of the curve of income distribution. So you should stop driving them crazy, like they're going to end up sleeping under a bridge. That's really unlikely to happen. So that's the first thing, like calm down a little bit. The second thing is, um, you can't prescribe your child's path. I mean, I think that's the impulse. That's what my father tried to do. He had a lot of anxiety about what was going to happen to his kids. And he thought that the way to deal with that uncertainty was to basically tell us what to do with our lives and to kind of coerce us into doing it. And that doesn't work. And it doesn't work for a lot of reasons. I mean, first of all, you, you know, you don't really know who your kid is. You have to help them kind of figure it out. That might sound touchy-feely, but it's true. And second of all, um, you know, not every not every path is the right path, right? I mean, not <laughs> the obvious path is not necessarily the right path for every kid. Uh, but most importantly, it doesn't work because your kid has to become a grown-up. Right, your kid at some point is going to have to get to a, a moment in their life when they have to start making their own choices. And you have to learn how to make your own choices. And the way you do that is the way you learn anything else, which is by practicing. So that thing that you read, which comes in the introduction of my book, in some ways it's a thesis statement of the book about kids who are very high achievers but lost and timid. Why are they lost and timid? Because they don't know how to make their own choices. And I saw this over and over and over again with my students. This is why I wrote the book, because I saw this with my students. And I wrote an article a few years before the book came out, and hundreds of people wrote back to me and said, like, this is my story, just like you said to me, this is my story. So, I mean, that's the parent piece of it. And I acknowledge that it's not easy, and it's not easy to be a parent. But, like, you know, I think there's way too much fear and anxiety and control in parenting. The systemic question, you know, how do we how do we create a situation in which kids like this aren't being produced? That's a much harder question because it is a system, and it's very hard to dismantle systems. They kind of have their own internal logic where kind of every piece, whether it's a student or a parent or a college or a high school, they're all acting uh, out of the incentives that the rest of the system uh, puts on them, sort of the pressures that the other parts of this machine put them under. So there's very little kind of freedom of movement. I mean, I, I, we could get into it. It would be a longer answer. I think I think it's ultimately rooted in questions of uh, of how we fund education in this country. I mean, one of the reasons that these affluent families are stampeding towards the you know the top twelve schools is that we've systematically starved public universities of funding. I mean, you have to have gone to the best public university in the country, maybe in the world, uh, which at a certain time was free. There was no tuition at the UC system, as I'm sure you know. There were no tuition, no fees until the early 70s, and I think no tuition until the early 80s. We've 
We've retreated from that commitment in a very major way since around the early 70s, starting in the early 70s. Um, so really, this, is, this whole situation is ultimately part of the issue of inequality that I think, you know, in some ways we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Uh, cognitively, we're finally talking about it, but it's also getting worse because we're not actually doing anything about it. Um, it's, it's an example of the way very large-scale economic factors and forces and systems can, um, can produce effects in very specific individuals, right? Like, that, that's what I ultimately say. Like, the reason your kid is suffering is ultimately because our system is so unfair and so unequal, even though your kid is actually seems to be the beneficiary of the inequality, does that make sense? It does. Uh, so the, the and it also raises numerous questions uh, for me. So there's another thing that you actually talked about. You talked about this idea of an expectation that we internalize of being good enough. And you said that once the expectation is internalized, it doesn't matter where the needed affirmation comes from. All achievement becomes right. a stand in for parental approval. It took me right. until I was 37 years old to realize that yeah, I might get the approval of my parents, but they're not the ones who are going to live with the consequences of my choices. My dad is not the one who would have to show up to do my job every day. Right. So how do you uncouple that uh, idea of achievement becoming a stand-in for parental approval? Uh, Because I think in immigrant cultures in particular, it's incredibly reinforced. Yeah, yeah. This is, listen, this is the, to me, this is the psychological core. And actually, at that moment in the book, I've been talking about a, a, a wonderful book that I would recommend to everybody. It's a famous book. It's called The Drama of the Gifted Child. It was written by a psychoanalyst, I think, like in the 80s, if not earlier. It's a very short book. And actually, the heart of it is about 20 pages long. And it basically just lays out the psychological dynamics that we've talked about. I didn't read it until I was writing Excellent Sheep. So I didn't read it until I was like, I don't know, 47 or something or 49. And um, it just, it was like the book that I had needed my whole life because it really laid out how we're raised by these parents who have kind of have their, first of all, they already have their own issues, right? They may have had parents of their own. They basically equate achievement with love and, and self-worth, right? And where does self-worth come from? Ultimately, it comes from the feeling that your parents love you and that you're worthy of that love. So achievement becomes the prerequisite of self-worth. You can't just love yourself because your parents don't just love you. They love you because you get the A. So this creates a cycle. I mean, these parents may have grown up like this to begin with. Maybe they didn't, but then they parent this way and it creates a cycle where you know, you get that A and your parents approve of you, your parents love you, and you get the A minus and they're like, well, what happened to the other three points? And suddenly, you know, you're kind of out in the outer darkness and mommy and daddy don't love me. Now, by the time you get to high school, certainly college, but this can persist. You said 37. I mean, it can persist. I think it can persist your entire life, right? I know people like this. You know, mommy and daddy may no longer be a visible part of the equation, but you have a a psyche that's structured as a kind of... um, as a kind of oscillation between what she, what the author, what she calls grandiosity, the feeling like you're the greatest person in the world, and abjection, the feeling that you're worthless. And this, I mean, this might sound very 
familiar to people if they introspect about their own internal condition. I mean, it certainly is very familiar to me. Um, I don't know if you can, I don't know if we're allowed to use swear words on this podcast, but well, I mean, um, like hot shit, piece of shit. That's how I've heard it described. Like you're the greatest person in the world or you're completely worthless. And if, and, and, and it takes, I mean, I said that I read the drama, the gift of child in my late forties. I had quote unquote figured this out before. In fact, I'd figured this out many times before. I'd never really said it this way to myself. Um, and even after I read it, you know, I found myself more than once slipping back into this. So it's, you, you have to be constantly vigilant. I do think it gets better over time. And the more times you have this realization and kind of break the cycle, the easier it gets, but it's really, really deeply entrenched. Uh, and you really have to do the kind of work of being aware of what your reactions are and trying to diffuse that and trying to realize, make, have the kinds of realizations that you had. Uh, I mean, yours was, you know, my dad's not going to live my life. Mine was, you know, I'm never going to win my father's approval. And ultimately that made it easier for me not to worry about other people's approval too. And it was very liberating. Um, but it took a long time to get there. And, um, um, you know, I think it's just, it's just work that people have to do. Um, yeah. So it's interesting. I I was just having a conversation with somebody uh, about this and there's something that I I look back at, at Berkeley in particular and the, the first couple of years, uh, the kinds of things that we were encouraged to do. And, and I started thinking about the elite education in general. You were sent to these places to basically become independent thinkers. Uh, yet they seem to be breeding grounds of conformity. Uh, and you say <laughs> society is a conspiracy to keep itself from the truth. We pass our lives submerged in propaganda, advertising messages, political rhetoric, the journalistic affirmation of the status quo, the platitudes of popular culture, the axioms of party, sect and class, the bromides we exchange every day on Facebook, the comforting lies our parents tell us and the sociable ones our friends do. The steady stream of falsehoods that we each tell ourselves all the time to save off the threat of self-knowledge. Uh, yeah, that was one of those, you know, moments in the book that just hit me in the face like a crowbar. Uh, yeah. Why? Why are these places such breeding grounds of conformity? And, you know, on the other hand, they encourage, you know, they, they present themselves as, you know, institutions of independent thinking. It reminds me of something that uh, I heard Dan Kennedy, the copywriter, say he met Werner Erhardt, the creator of the Landmark Forum. And he said, we sell independence, but we breed dependence. Yeah. There's a, listen, there's a lot to pick apart there. I mean, I did say it is a, it's, it's one of the more uh, um, high-flown passages in the book. But yeah, society is a conspiracy to keep itself from the truth. I mean, I think that that's generally true. I don't think, you know, people don't really love truth-tellers. People like homeostasis, right? They like things to go on as they are. Um, so I, I certainly don't think universities in particular are breeding grounds of conformity. But, you know, you're, you're asking me again, you're asking me a question no one's quite asked me this way, so I'm kind of thinking about this as we're talking. But I've been known to do that um, to people. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, one thing about universities is they're very complex institutions that serve a whole mul- multiplicity of ends. So they don't, don't, they don't just do one thing, and they aren't just one thing. So... Uh, I mean, I almost laughed when you said, you know, we're sent to college to be independent thinkers. I mean, I do think, mainly because there are still good and conscientious professors, 
And mainly just because of what happens when you put a bunch of inquisitive, bright 18 to 22-year-olds together, that independent thinking is one of the things that can be cultivated at a university. And it happens. Um, I think what I'm saying is that it tends to happen in the smaller space, in the classrooms, in the dorm rooms, hopefully. But in terms of uh, the university's function in society and why people, quote-unquote, are sent to them, I don't think they're sent to them to become independent thinkers. They're sent to them in the first, really mainly to get credentials for the job market. Or at best, if we want to talk about, because I don't think they're empty credentials. I do think for the most part they're real credentials. But if we want to talk about the cognitive work that those credentials represent, it's not independent thinking, except maybe in the context of a specific discipline. I mean, you, you know, you're trained to be a specialist. You know, you major in something. Uh, and then, you know, usually uh, if you're a high-functioning professional anyway, you generally get an advanced degree, so you get specifically more specialized training. So you learn to think in a particular way, and maybe you, hopefully you learn some kind of creative thinking within that field, since a lot of times you don't. Uh, but in terms of the kind of independent thinking you're talking about and I'm talking about and, and what we call a liberal education or a liberal arts education is supposed to be about, that's something else. That's about a general skepticism and uh, of you know, sort of any kind of established truth. And not just mindless skepticism, but a skepticism that's equipped to do the kind of critical thinking and self-reflection and self-education that will enable you to you know, kind of think through that accepted truth and maybe come out with your own ideas about the thing, right? Mm -hmm. That's a lot, that's harder. And it, it's a lot harder. It's also a lot more fun. I think it's essential for citizenship. People always say this. I think it's true. Um, it doesn't happen in the same kind of systematic way as technical training. It doesn't happen sequentially. It can't be measured and tested. Um, you kind of need to leave room for it. And the problem, especially as our educational system has evolved, I mean, I think it was probably a problem 50 years ago, but especially the way it's evolved, there's less and less room for that kind of education. There's, you know, assessment regimes and metrics and testing regimes and rubrics and the bureaucrats have taken over the universities, the kind of management bureaucrats have taken over the universities. And professors are heavily disincentivized from actually teaching because they're rewarded for their scholarship. And students are disincentivized from that kind of wandering and you know, intellectual wandering and contemplation because they're told they need to, you know, prepare themselves for the job market. And they actually police each other, right? It's like, oh, you're going to major in that? You're going to major in art history? That's crazy. We're all majoring in economics. What are you going to do with art history? So, I still think, I still believe in colleges and universities. I think some of them at least do a really good job, and I certainly believe in their potential to reclaim the function that they should, that they should have in these respects. But I do think it's harder and harder for them to actually to do that, to teach people to be independent thinkers. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the, the parallels between our lives seem uncanny, both with fathers who are college professors in science, both with siblings who have become doctors. Uh, and I wonder, because I've never quite got an answer to this question, my sister and I had probably pretty similar upbringings, minus the fact that my parents had more money when she was growing up. 
And I've always wondered how you could have two kids with virtually the same education uh, and same path and end up with such drastically different results. She, you know, became the chief anesthesiology resident at Yale. I got fired from every job I ever had. How does something Mm -hmm. like that happen? Well, look, I mean, I think one of the things it tells us, uh, and again, I've never thought about this, but one of the things it tells us is that um, for everything we can say about nurture and maybe even genetics uh, and, and, you know, cultural, the cultural determination of individual lives, I mean, people, after all, are individuals, and people can be very different for, one to the other, even if they're sitting on the same couch at home with the same parents growing up. Uh, People come under different influences. I mean, I can reflect on why my brother and I took different paths. Um, I think it would be, you know, very specific to us. Um, One thing that does leap out of me, and maybe I've always put too much emphasis on this, it sounds like it was actually the opposite in your family, is birth order. Um, I was the youngest, and, you know, it's a cliche, but I think a cliche with a lot of basis that youngest children. Also, I had two older siblings, so uh, which means that they've kind of taken care of the parental expectations already, and I kind of grew up in this position of dissent also. Like, you know, there were actually four power centers, and I and I was skeptical of all of them in my family. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think... I think people come under different influences and, and, and they're individuals. And this gets back to what we were saying about, you know, parents kind of telling their kids what to do. Like, people are really different from one to the other. And I think that that, I mean, to me, one of the things, you know, parents always say, we want our kids to be happy. And, you know, I believe them. I, I think that may not be the whole story. I believe them. But what is it that makes someone happy? And I think one of the big things is kind of expressing your individuality, not in kind of some kind of touchy feely way, but like living a life that, that, that's your life. That feels like it's your life. Like it's the right life for you to live. It's the right job for you to have. It's the right person for you to love. And no one can predict what that's going to be. Cause you know, your sister does one thing, you do the other thing. What parent can possibly predict something like that? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Hmm. Wow. Well, uh, well, let's talk specifically uh, about careers. And I, I want to frame it because, uh, but by talking about another quote in the book, you said, life is more than a jobs, a job. Jobs are more than a paycheck and a country is more than its wealth. Education is more than the acquisition of marketable skills. And you are more than your ability to contribute to your employer's bottom line or the nation's GDP, no matter what the rhetoric of politicians or executives would have you think. Yet that rhetoric is so dominant in society because we live in a capitalist society. Um, like I was, I was just telling somebody earlier, yeah, I wrote a book titled An Audience of One. I can tell you my publisher would probably be a fuck of a lot happier if it had reached an audience of millions already. Right, right. Uh, and so I, I wonder you know, how you resolve those two things. How do we really – how do we, we recognize what you say as a truth and balance that with the fact that we actually live in a society where we are measured uh, based on, on you know, uh, financial measures? Right. Now, this is an important question, and, it, uh, and it's, it's something I've thought about a lot and written about a lot. I actually wrote a follow-up essay to the book that came out about a year later called The Neoliberal Arts. Um, this is, um, I think, there's a distinction that people have forgotten and a history that people have forgotten. Um, we've always been a capitalist society, but when people say capitalism now, including the way you just said it, and I don't blame you for this, what they really mean, because it's the only kind of capitalism we've known for about 40 years, is what's come to be called neoliberalism. Sometimes it's called economism or market fundamentalism, but it's basically the idea, not just of a capitalist society, but that money is the only value, the only value, the only thing, the only measure of worth is wealth or GDP. 
the, uh, the only function of a human being is their function in the market as consumers and even more as producers, right? And so now at the point of my essay, The Neoliberal Arts, is that we've recreated our educational system in the image of neoliberalism so that people are only thought of, the only function of an educational system is thought of uh, to be to produce as producing producers, training people for the job market. And so here's what I'm saying, and this is a distinction in history that's getting lost. We were always a capitalist society, but we didn't always have this attitude. We didn't always have this attitude about capitalism or about education. And we certainly understood capitalism does not have to mean and has not historically necessarily meant that money is the only thing. Certainly capitalist society. Let's say a capitalist economy, money's the only thing. But a capitalist society isn't just capitalism. And we used to understand that there are other things in the world and other things in society, other things in life. And we have had and still have all of these institutions that embody other values, like universities, churches, the arts, journalism. You know, we could go on and on. Mm -hmm. Now, they have to pay the bills because we live in a capitalist society, not even because we live in a capitalist society, because we live in a money society. The money has to come from somewhere, and human, human societies have operated on money for millennia, okay? What if you would have had to get the money from the king or the church, whatever. It's the same point. Um, there's a difference between saying you need money to keep the lights on and saying everything must be devoted to money. So what we're seeing, and I think we see it in churches and in the media and so forth, is also a creep towards a situation where they're also forgetting that they're about anything other than money. Um, so what I'm saying is it doesn't have to be like this. And, and the fact that we live in a capitalist society doesn't mean that it has to be like this. Um, we, just have to, we just have to remember that um, there are other reasons to run a college or a university than just producing producers. Uh, and that's what public support of higher education was about. It was about spreading opportunity. But it was also about, I mean, and this was, I mean, super explicit. I mean, we could go back and I'd give you a whole list of all the sort of major turning points in American higher education, especially public higher education. It was always about uh, creating an educated citizenry that was understood to be necessary for the health of a democracy. It was always about that. So it's only really the last 40 years or so that is the anomaly, right? That's the weird part, not not the other thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think for me, I, you know, I had friends who I studied abroad with, particularly those who grew up in Denmark, where they're like, oh, yeah, university is free. The idea of student loan debt and all this stuff just seemed absurd to them. And I said, yeah, that's because in the United States, education is a business. It's not a service. Um, it's not a public service, even though it masquerades as one in a lot of ways. Uh, and I wonder, as somebody who has written a book about this, um, knowing all the turning points, when you see things like Betsy DeVos repealing regulation that basically allows for-profit schools to effectively get away with what is predatory lending, what do you think about something like that? Does it make you cringe? I would say that it makes me vomit. Um, Cringe doesn't begin to cover it, especially because the Obama administration has finally killed these these beasts effectively in the last few years. I thought we were done with these people. But this is exactly the problem. I mean, I don't know that 
I, I imagine that Betsy DeVos's philosophy, to the extent that she has one, is precisely this kind of market fundamentalism. Because one of the things that goes along with it, right, is a hostility to any kind of public good, right? Everything must be privatized. Everything is better off in the market. So all the things, including like parks and roads, you know, but also schools, are better off being run on a for-profit basis. And, you know, my belief, and, and this is a, a belief that has long, again, it's just not just Denmark, okay? We also have a mixed economy. We had a new deal. We had, a, you know, the, the, at least the rudiments of a social democratic system in, in some respects, right? In some areas of life, uh, which says, no, actually, some things are a public good. Some things are a human right. Some things, even from the perspective of efficiency, are better handled in the public sector, supported with tax dollars, because you don't want because this is what you know. This is what you get when you turn um, education over to the for-profit sector. Uh, maybe you get a few really good schools, and mainly you get people who are preying on on children and students. Uh, I mean, we, I don't know that we need to go into this in detail, but uh, education is not like another. You know, consumer good. I mean, you can go to the market and you see a bin full of apples and you could pick out one that you like and you know exactly what you're getting. College is a lot more complicated than that. And, and you know, the consumers are 18-year-olds. Or if it's a for-profit college, they're like 27-year-old veterans from like low-income communities who don't really understand what college is or what it's supposed to be or what their options are or what they're being sold. So it just doesn't work that way. It's, it, it, it doesn't work well, right? And it, it, it only works for the people who are running it. So that's what I think. And unfortunately, you know, we're going backwards on this. Yeah. I wonder, uh, yeah, I, I completely agree that this is really backwards. I remember Trevor Noah, Noah, Noah tell, you know, talking about Betsy DeVos and his you know, comment on it was, how evil can you possibly get? Uh, do you yeah. think that the implications of this are going to affect us for a really long time? Like, have we, done pol- have we created policies that will create damage that has ripples uh, into many years from now? Well, I think we've been doing that for a long time. Yeah. I mean... Uh, in the early, as of the early seventies, three quarters of the budgets of public universities were uh, came from the taxpayer. Three quarters, and now it's one quarter. And and listen, this is why we have whatever it is now a trillion and a half dollars of student debt. I mean, if you just graph the decline in public funding and the and the rise in student debt, they they almost match each other. Um, and you know, it means. Millions of kids are saddled with debt. Millions of other kids couldn't go to college in the first place because they couldn't afford to. Um, I mean, I mean, we could, you know, I mean, what, what are, I mean, what are the limits of those kinds of effects? You know, uh, employers who can't find qualified workers, families and communities that are stuck in poverty, generation after generation. I mean, education is a is a is a key. Um, it's a it's. You know, it's kind of a it's kind of a keystone institution in society, and the reason you know we're the first country to have universal uh, primary school education, the first country to have universal high school education, and the first country to start building a public university system, and and to ha- and we, as far as I know, we still have the highest percentage of people enrolled in universities, or at least starting in universities, and we did all of this. Again, because we knew it was going to be really beneficial economically, which it was, um, but also because we we believe in opportunity and we believe 
inequality. We don't talk about equality very much anymore, but we believe that everybody's supposed to have the same chance because, you know, we're all on the same level. Um, when you take that away, you, you end up with, I mean, in many ways, you end up with the country that we're seeing now, which is not only desperately unequal, but w- which is boiling with class resentment and class rage. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I would say that's the consequence. Yeah, and I think it is the tip of the iceberg. Uh, so earlier you alluded to journalism, uh, media, and a bunch of other things. And, I, you know, somebody who's an educator, I, I can't help but ask you, what do you think the role of technology and social media has been uh, on our value system, uh, particularly for young people? Well, I mean, that's really a huge question. I'm not really sure that that's a question that can be answered very easily. So I can really only take little pieces of sure. it. Um, I'm happy to, I, I, you know, I know it's a huge question. I didn't expect like a succinct yeah. answer, but I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, listen, I also think that somebody my age and probably even somebody your age can scarcely appreciate the role of social media in the lives of young people who grow up with it. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, the, the you know, this is something that's intruded on our lives and maybe is really um, reshaped them in a lot of ways. But now we're talking about a generation where the fundamental architecture of their psyches is being laid down through social media to a great extent. I mean, that's just like a whole different animal. But it seems, I mean, from what I've been told and from what I can gather, it seems clear, for example, that the sort of excellent cheap stuff that we're talking about, the sense that, you know, I have to do X, Y, or Z uh, in order to get the external validation that makes me feel like I'm a worthwhile human being who's worthy of love, that this is exacerbated by social media because, first of all, kids are like, they're, mon- they're sort of policing each other, right? There's this, you know, it's like when I went to high school, I mean, high school was high school. High school sucked. High school was like all the crap that you see <laughs> yeah. in movies and television shows with, you know, peer pressure and popular kids and, you know, feeling like, what am I doing in this body? And, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. But the school bus comes at 3.30 and you go home. And then you're away from that. And maybe you talk on the phone with your friends, but you're fundamentally away from that. Now they're never, ever away from it. So all of that kind of popularity stuff, uh, all that kind of self-image stuff is just super, super intense. And then specifically, you know, in these communities where everyone is ultimately rated by what college they got into, that's also part of the mix, right? And everyone's seeing in the college acceptance letters, you know, everybody sort of gets, you know, everybody knows where everybody else got in the moment they get in. And I imagine the parents also are kind of surveilling each other with the same minute level of scrutiny. So that's, it's clearly exacerbated that stuff. Um, And I'd also say, you know, I don't talk about this a lot in the book, a little bit, I guess, but I also, I've written about solitude and I started to write about it specifically in response to social media and how it entered my life starting in like 2008. Um, We talk about being an independent thinker. We talk about kind of figuring out who you are in order to live a life that feels like the right life to you. Um, I think you need solitude for that. You need to be able to retreat from everyone else's opinion, from the kind of the chatter, from sort of the common wisdom, uh, you know, and kind of figure out what you want to do, what you think. Um, it's, it seems like, I mean, so I, I actually read about a study that somebody did where they went to college campus to just try to find out about the place of solitude in students' lives. And they had to actually explain what it meant to a lot of kids. <laughs> like they literally didn't know what it meant. Wow. So, you know, I think that's a big problem.
Yeah. Well, the reason I asked the question, uh, you know, as I was thinking about it, you know, we talk a lot about purpose and, and meaning and a lot of these different things on this show and, and, uh, and a lot of the things that I read. And it, it seems to me that there are almost two strange paradoxes at play. So yeah, I'm sure you've probably read uh, David uh, Brooks' uh, book, The Road to Character, where he talks about this mm-hmm. idea of resume values versus eulogy values mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. fact that an exceedingly large number of young people want to be famous uh, nowadays, particularly because of a value system. And then on a flip side of that, at the same time, you say that, you know, we, we were for the first time, you've got a generation that is not valuing the paycheck as much as they did. Millennials care a lot about purpose. They care about meaning. Uh, I, I think, you know, probably one of my other favorite quotes that you said in the book about this was, you know, money and status are not enough for sustaining a purpose and neither is the so-called realist goal of just earning a living. The problem being exactly with that, just next time someone tells you that, you should forget about finding a sense of meaning or doing what you love and just worry about earning a living. Ask yourself if that's what they did. Chances are it's not. And if it is, ask yourself if they seem like a happy person. So you've got these two sort of narratives at play. And I guess I'm just, you know, uh, commenting for the sake of discussion. What do you what do you think about what do you make of all that? Well, I think it's complicated. I mean, it just, you know, I mean, people are complicated. I think generations, you know, it's hazardous to kind of to even talk in terms of generations because they're artificial constructs. But it does, it does seem to be that these uh, that, that these two contradictory things are happening, right? Um, people, because of social media, are more obsessed with sort of being known and with fame. And we do have a generation that seems to care more about purpose. Um, I sometimes wonder if that's because they, uh, they know that economically they're so screwed. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of a it's kind of a philosophical adjustment to the situation. Like, well, you know, my, you know, what else? You know, I'm not going to be able to have a real kind of middle class life like my parents, but at least I can have a meaningful life. But you know what? I mean, it it actually look. I mean, I, I again, when I kind of look within myself, I think when people look within themselves, what they find is not uh, a clear and consistent set of values. I think it's. You know, part of the human condition, not to, again, be high-flown, but I think it's part of the human condition that we live with contradictions. We live with contradictory impulses. Uh, we live with contradictory values. And, 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 it's, and it's a big part of the work of being human to, to figure out those contradictions. And not once and for all, but to live with those tensions, you know. Um, so... It doesn't seem actually like a contradiction now that we talk about it. It doesn't seem to be like a contradiction that kids today, if they do, have these two conflicting set of values. It sounds to me like a tension that they live with, that they're constantly trying to adjust. And the truth is, this is what I've seen with the students who've talked to me. I mean, why are they talking to me? They're talking to me because... They feel these imperatives that have come from their parents, that have come from society, be successful, be rich, be famous. Uh, but they also have these impulses to do something that's more meaningful for them. And they're trying to figure it out. And, and one thing I never, ever tell anybody is that it's easy. It's not easy in practical terms because you need to make a living. And it's not easy even in, psych- in psychological terms because, you know... You know, you, 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 like I said, you, I mean, you can't eradicate those needs that are implanted in you when you're a kid, those sort of drama of the gifted child things. You, you can only just sort of try to manage them. So, and then, and then look, I mean, I think 
they're the very, very rare people who really can just sort of pursue a life of purpose and not worry about anything else. And then there's a much larger group of people who actually are at the other end of the spectrum where they're not actually being introspective or thinking about whether they're happy uh, or grappling with these contradictions at all. They're just kind of blindly going along, whether it's, you know, pursuing fame on social media or pursuing wealth, you know, in business school. Um, it, it, it's, it's, uh, you know, so, um, I mean, I think it's, it's, that, it's the people in the middle that are the really interesting ones, the ones who are dealing with the contradictions that their, you know, life and times are, are handing to them. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that uh, really is a nice way to bring us full circle to, I think, one of my other quotes in the book that really struck me late. So this was one of those books where I just had so much highlighted and underli- underlined. But you said life is tragic, which means, among other things, you can't have it all. And it's going to be bad for a while. You will wander. You will blunder. You will lose your heart. You'll have to endure the pity or scorn of your peers, your parents, friends, maybe total strangers. People will wonder what happened to you. You seem so promising in high school. You'll probably go through periods of depression as I did more than once. You will agonize as you have to. It's going to suck a good deal less if you can find a supportive community in college or afterwards or even just a few sympathetic friends. But you can get through it. You can get past it. You can find a way to invent your life. I think the the thing that struck me most, uh, particularly because it's something I'm intimately familiar with, is you mentioned dealing with periods of depression. Uh, Mm. And it's interesting because I, I feel like that seems common to numerous high achievers across the board. Uh, I mean, I've had venture capitalists here who've attempted suicide, who have millions of dollars and have yeah. you know, had huge impacts on society, yeah. but have two suicide attempts. Yeah. So I wonder, one, you know, what role does culture play in exacerbating this dynamic? And two, how do we deal with it um, in the pursuit of, of you know, what you say uh, is inventing your life? The dynamic being that we have to deal with things like depression and change and, and challenges. Yeah. Let me say, first of all, that, that, uh, that passage you read, the one that ends, you know, you can get through it, you can get past it, you can invent your life. When I first wrote it, those verbs were not can, they were will. You will get through it, you ah. will get past it. And I realized, you know, no, I can't say that, you know? Yeah. I can't say that you're definitely going to. I can only say that you can. And And again, I'm not... I'm not. I'm not trying to sell easy solutions here because there aren't any. Uh, and some people don't. Some people don't get past it. And um, sometimes because they don't just attempt suicide. Um, I, I mean, this is a big. I, I'm not a psychologist. This is a very complicated. You know, depression and suicide are very complicated. But it does seem to me that the kind of people you're talking about, um, that depression. Again, it's the, it's the drama of the gifted child. She is a psychologist, psych, psychiatrist. Um, it's a depression that comes from a feeling of worthlessness, a feeling of failure, uh, that in turn comes from um, these, I'm not even, I, you know, I wasn't even, I, I was going to say unrealistic expectations, but it's more than that. It's this, it's this um, kind of insane perfectionism that's the thing. It's like, it's not enough to be good or even great. You have to be the best. You have to be the best. That's what's so crazy about it. Because, you know, you're, look, I mean, let's be honest about this. You know, yes, parents want what's best for their kids. They want their kids to be happy. A lot of parents project their own narcissism onto their kids, especially high achieving parents. You know, 
kids become narcissistic projections of their own idealized self, their own hang-ups, their own grandiosity trip. So you have to be perfect, and your parents make you feel like you are the best person in the history of the world. I mean, how does anybody live up to that? And when you and when it's all or nothing, I, I was going to say something earlier that I forgot to say. So, grandiosity and depression. You're the greatest person in the world. You're worthless. I think one of the things that should happen as you get older is that those extremes start to come together, and you realize like. You're not the greatest person in the world, and you're not the worst person in the world. You come to a more just and more objective assessment of your own value and virtues, and you you know, and you find reasons to like yourself and love yourself. Um, and so, when you talk about the depression or the suicide attempts of high achievers, this is how I understand it. I mean, I imagine in a lot of cases there are other things going on, but this is how I understand it. How do we deal with that? I mean. <sighs> Um, you know, again, there's sort of systemic solutions that would require attacking the entire problem. And then there are individual, quote unquote, solutions, uh, which is why I wrote the book, which is why I talk to people and talk to young people. I, I think that uh, no one, no one individual can wait for us to solve these problems together. I tell kids, you can't wait for the grownups to get their heads screwed on straight. You have to save yourself. Um, and, you know, I don't think that there's, there's just one way to do that, but I think for a lot of people, and, you know, what, you know, one sort of category of people who wrote to me, they're all, you know, kids looking for guidance, but they're also sort of older people who said, I was this kind of kid, kind of like you, or sometimes they're 70 years old, and they say, you know, I was that person, and I managed to figure out a way to be happy. And, and usually, I mean, you know, the main theme of those stories, and it's my story, too, and I guess it's probably your story, is like, you realize, like, you know what? I can live without those rewards. They're not my rewards anyway. And even if I feel a little bad that I've fallen short, it's ultimately the thing that I'm getting by letting go of that kind of ambition is much, much, much more gratifying than what I'm losing by, you know, um, stepping off the racetrack. Hmm. Wow. Uh, well, I think that makes a really fitting and poetic end to our conversation. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews, the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? <laughs> um, oh my God. Well, it's, it's, it's not, it's not a word that I've, uh, I've thought about. Why, why do you use that word? Why is it an important word for you? Well, I mean, it's the sort of central ethos of everything that, uh, I've done. Um, you know, I mean, I, the podcast is called The Unmistakable Creative. I wrote a book called Unmistakable. Uh, and it's just one of those words that I had a friend, a guy named Mars Dorian, who's our visual artist who does a lot of our brand work. And he said, you know, he said, I had one goal with my work. And that was when I did something, I didn't have to put my signature on it because it was distinct. Mm. Yeah. So you're talking, it sounds to me like you're talking about individuality, like yeah, being, being an individual, being a unique individual. And your question is, what is it that makes something unmistakable? Yeah. What do you think it is? Well, well, you know, since you're looking for a, for a short and pithy answer, I mean, I think that it's, um, it's, it's what we've been talking about. It's, um, um, letting you, letting yourself be, uh, that unique individual you are, you know, so that you can grow up in the same family as your sister and be a completely different person. 
which means not fitting yourself to a template, not you have to major in economics, not you have to be a doctor, not you have to do X, Y, or Z, but letting yourself over decades, um, you know, create or invent your own specific life that is necessarily an outgrowth of your own specific self. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, like I said before, when I said, uh, when I stopped worrying about my father's approval, I stopped worrying about anybody else's approval. Um, I think it's important to cultivate a willingness to disappoint people and to not give a crap what they think about you. Because like you said, it's your life. It's not their life. Wow. Well, I think that makes a really poetic end to a very insightful and thought-provoking conversation. Where can people find out more about you, your work, your books, and everything else that you're up to? Um, the book is Excellent Sheep. You can get it everywhere. Um, my website is billderezowitz.com. Um, um, I, I, I assume they, they can find the spelling of that. Yeah. On, on, we'll we'll on include this. all that in the show notes. So. Yeah. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that, and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.